Let me pray, and uh, we will dive in, and we're going to finish Romans today. It's kind of bittersweet. We're going to finish Romans today. Been in it since August, uh, so let's pray to that end as we open God's Word one more time in the book of Romans. Father, we're grateful. Um, we're grateful for the work of salvation and our need for a Savior that you're willing to send your Son to die on a cross on our behalf, that by the gifts of faith and repentance, we might turn from our sin and turn to Christ and be given literally new life, new spiritual life, that we could be made right with you through your Son, to be declared right. What a great gift this good news of the gospel is. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and the way that it teaches and instructs. And, Lord, we pray for our time today as we open your word one more time and we look at what it looks like to be the church, to be in the trenches together, that you would do a work through your spirit in our lives and the life of our church that we might love you and know you and proclaim you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody in here watch NASCAR? I'm not really a NASCAR fan, but I remember as a kid, I, look, I grew up with a bunch of rednecks, okay? Um, I, I grew up in a small town. I remember my dad watching the Daytona 500 and me sitting down in the living room next to his comfy love seat and going, Dad, are you seriously going to watch people drive around the track a couple of hundred times for the next three hours of your day? This is almost as boring as golf, like watching golf, right? That was early years. Got to college, still didn't have much NASCAR in my bones, and um, was in Denton, Texas. And so in 1996, about 20 miles south of Denton, between Denton and Fort Worth, they were building this Texas Motor Speedway. Not the one over here on I-10, like the big one. The one that seats 180,000 people. And a few years later, a buddy of mine said, hey, do you want to go to NASCAR? Do you want to go to the Texas Motor Speedway with me? I got a couple of tickets. My dad is into this deal. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Not really a NASCAR guy. And he's like, aren't you from like Lano, Texas? You should want to go. Your whole town is there. And the answer was, okay, I'll go. And he goes, I'm just going to tell you before you go, you, you will be shocked and amazed at how amazing this is. Going to a NASCAR event. And so we showed up and got to the parking lot. And man, there's the tailgaters everywhere in the parking lot that had their flags, that had their bobbleheads even back then. So you had the Jeff Gordon flag. You had the Earnhardt flag. You had Jimmy Johnson. You had all these different stars of NASCAR. We get out of the car, and he hands me a, hands, a, a headset. He's like, man, that's for your ears because this thing is going to be crazy loud. And he also handed me this scanner. I'm like, what, 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 what is this? I, I, I'm just new to this thing. He's like, look, um, I'll explain it more when we get there, but um, not, your headset is not just to cancel out the noise, but there's also a speaker in it, and you can tune in on this scanner to the different pit crews, and you can hear the conversation between the Dale Earnhardts and his pit crew as they go through the race. And so I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And so we get into the place, and y'all, it, it is the loudest thing that you would ever experience if you've been to a NASCAR race. 
And so I'm sitting in, in the whole place, this massive place that seats 180,000 people is just shaking because it's so loud. And then the race starts and literally your head, you need to go to the chiropractor over here. Jamie, where are you at? Like your head the whole time just does really quickly goes from like your left to your right. That's how fast these cars are. You, you couldn't, you, the, the TV doesn't do it justice. You literally see the car here and then it's to the bank on the other side. And then you start tuning in. This is my first experience at this. You start tuning in to the pit crew. And there's one truth that you, you have to come to, man. This is the ultimate team sport. Because there's no way that any of those celebrity drivers could make it through a couple of hundred laps around this without wrecking and killing themselves without that pit crew that tells them to bank here and move up and bank there and say, hey, there's somebody on your six, go here. It's unbelievable how much communication is involved, how important that pit crew is to the success of a NASCAR driver. But at the end of the race, what do you see? You see the guy that's peeling out and busting out the million-dollar engine who's in the winner's circle, and the pit crew's not there. I don't know NASCAR very well. If you follow it, do you know anybody on the pit crew of your favorite driver? You don't. I'm going to guess. See, the tendency in life is to look around at sports stars or movie stars or even pastors or the person you listen to on a podcast. The person in the driver's seat as this self-sufficient, self-made hero when the supporting cast is essential to the success of that person. The tendency in life more personally for us is to say, I'm in the driver's seat, and in our most honest moment say, I really don't need anybody else. Thank you very much. Been there? But here's the thing, the Christian life and the Christian's mission is a team sport. There is no I in church. I spelled it. There's no I in church. And let me ask you this, how often do you have the thought? These are thoughts that I have. I've got this. If you want something done right, finish the sentence. You've got to do it yourself. I can't trust anyone to do this. And people are too much drama and too much work to ask them to do it. If that's your thought about the Christian life, how's that working out for you? Are you exhausted? Are you frustrated? Better yet, are you isolated from other people? See, the net result of us being maverick, lone ranger, one man bands in the Christian life is not a pretty picture at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we are less productive. We are less mature. And that's a temptation to, that we have to live out the Christian life on our own, isolated but exhausted. Listen, today we come to the end of Romans, as I said a minute ago, and we see Paul. The man in the driver's seat. And you know what he's doing in the 16th chapter of Romans? He's highlighting the pit crew. 
He's encouraging the pit crew. He's drawing attention to the laborers and his friends in ministry who are laboring with him for the sake of the gospel. You may see it and look at it and go, that's just a bunch of names of nobodies that we don't know. But here's the thing. Paul had a crew. He had a pit crew that was with him, supporting him, caring for him, that he was caring for them. And that's what I want you to see as we close out today. You're going to see really three things. You're going to see how mission critical biblical community is. You're going to see how biblical community is even a stopgap for the enemy's plans and division that can happen in a church. And then you're going to see the church family's right response together to the message of the gospel and the truths of God's word. So turn there with me. Romans 1, excuse me, Romans 16, dyslexic. Romans 16, and we'll be in verses 1 through 16, 21 through 23. Um, A lot of names, but I want to walk through this, and I want to show you the importance of Christian friendship and Christian community this morning. Page, I think, 950 if you need a Bible. Words will be up here And let me just walk through this with you. Here's what I'm going to do as we read, because I'm trying to take a chunk here, is I'm just going to start reading, and I'm going to stop here and there and explain a few things, and we're going to get through, and we'll we'll draw out some truths and application, okay? With me? Romans 16. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Syntecray, that you may welcome her in the Lord, a way away in the Lord, away worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron or a protector of many, and of myself as well. Listen, it is likely that Phoebe, which you've maybe never heard of, it is likely on a human level, it's Phoebe is the one who is delivering this letter from the area of Corinth where Paul is, this church she's at, is a neighboring church, Paul knows her, and this is the woman who delivers the letter of Romans to the Roman church, and why you and I, on a human level, have the book of Romans. This unsung person in the pit crew, Phoebe. And it says that they should welcome her, that she is someone who has cared for the saints. It's like me when... You know, the Vaughns moved to Colorado. That was a family in our church. And so I'm, if I knew a pastor or a church near where they moved, I would call them and say, hey, there's these great folks named the Vaughns, and they're going to be in the area, and I'm recommending her to them. This is kind of like in some churches a letter of recommendation or transfer. So here's this person you never heard of, but it's likely why you have this beautiful book of Romans with such rich gospel truths in it because this unnamed, unspoken person, Phoebe. Greet Prissa, which is Priscilla and Aquila, maybe ring a bell for you, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles gives thanks as well. Listen, Priscilla and Aquila. You remember the book of uh, Acts? In Acts chapter 18 where Paul is in Corinth. And he names these two. This is like the power ministry. This is the couple. This is the couple who loves Jesus and does ministry together. You see that the text says that they risked their life for Paul. It looks like in Corinth, and excuse me, in the end of chapter 18, they go to Ephesus and there's this riot. And Priscilla and Aquila help Paul out. It says that they hosted a church in their home. I want you to think about all these people in your home. 
How, how would that work? How much cleaning would you have to do? How much burden would you have to have? These people are about the ministry of the gospel. It says they risk their necks. You also see in the book of Acts another note. There's this guy named Apollos, and it says he was mighty in his preaching. He had a lot of zeal to preach the word of God, and people were coming to know Jesus. But Paul put Priscilla and Aquila on this guy because he didn't fully understand the truth of the Scripture as a new believer. So Priscilla and Aquila discipled Apollos, and he said he did great work for the kingdom. Do you know these names? Priscilla and Aquila, these are people who are now in Rome that he's talking to and encouraging. Look at it in verse 5 there. It says, Greet my beloved Epinanus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. That's probably in the city of Ephesus. Greet Mary, that's an easier name, who has worked hard for you. These women who have worked hard. Greet Andronicus. You got any baby names you're looking for? Here we go. Andronicus and Junia. Listen, Andronicus is a Latin Greek word when you put it together. Junia, my kinsman, she's Jewish or he is. We don't know. Uh, my fellow prisoners, so these people were in prison with Paul at some point. They were well known to the apostles that they were in Christ. You're going to see this a lot. The continuity here is that they're in Christ, they're in the Lord before me. Greet Ampl- Help me out. Amplatus, my beloved in the Lord. I practice this. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Do you see it? The continuity, my beloved Stacy's. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ, the pit crew. Here we go. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Listen, the history, you can draw out some history. I did the work this week, so you didn't have to. But this guy, it looks like it may even be the great grand, the grandson of Herod the Great. So you have all these different kinds of people in this list. Greet my kingsman Herodian. Greet these in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, two sisters it looks like. Greet the beloved Tursus who has worked hard, there it is again, in the Lord. Greet Rufus, I think of Survivor, remember watching Survivor, the guy Rufus in there. Uh, Chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me. If you go to the book of Mark, is is this good information for you? Background information, if you go to the book of Mark, you see a, a... the son of Simon of Cyrene. Anybody know who Simon of Cyrene is? He's the guy who carried Jesus' cross. It lists his son, his name is Rufus. This may be his son, the guy who carried Jesus' cross. And his mother who ministered to Paul in some way, which we don't know specifics, and on and on. All this pit crew. He continues to list. There's over about 30 names here in Rome that he lists. All workers in the Lord. And come down to verse 21. And, and then he tells the churches in Rome who's with him. See, Paul is in the city of Corinth writing this. And so he unpacks for the church in Rome who's with him. And, and, they, and that they would send their greetings. Timothy, we know Timothy, First and Second Timothy. He ended up being the pastor, the young pastor of the church in Ephesus. His fellow worker. Paul had led him to Christ. He's with Paul. Paul's not alone. He's not a lone ranger. He greets you. Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my kingsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. This is not a ghostwriter situation, okay? 
He's dictating, Paul's dictating to him, and this guy's writing at least this part of the letter down, just so we're clear. Gaius, who is the host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer. Man, the CFO of Corinth is hanging out with Paul. He's a believer in Jesus. Our brother, Cortus, greets you. Now listen, I took some time to go through all these names likely you've never heard of, um, but let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this is important. Paul is not a one-man show. He's certainly in the driver's seat, but he has a pit crew. He has friends. He has friends he's doing ministry with. That's why we bring it up. And look at the continuity between the friends. They are in Christ. Do you see it? You see it like seven or eight times. They are in the Lord. So what brings these very distinct, different people together is that they share the bond of Christ. And they share the same mission and values and vision for what their life ought to look like. They are friends. There's also some diversity here. Look at the list. This is first century. And ladies, in first century, the general culture in first century looked down, it's just what it was, okay? They they did not look at women in general in an espousing, lifting up way that we do. So for Paul to list specifically ten women in this list, people who worked hard, these women who worked hard in ministry to encourage them. Man, sometimes people read the New Testament And when they start reading about roles in the church, and I would say this is a complementarian church, they start reading about the roles that men have to lead and women have to serve. Man, they start looking at Paul and say, he's a misogynist pig. Man, is that the Paul that you see here? That is not the Paul I see here. The Paul I see here is grateful for the service of key women in these churches. He raises them up. He encourages them for the hard work. Listen, this church doesn't go without the ladies of our church. None of our ministries go without the faithful, servant-hearted women of this church. And I hope if you're a lady in this room and you've been here that you feel encouraged and built up that God has a mission and gifts to give you to use in this church. And so I hope you're encouraged by that. That's the kind of church that we want to be. There's women. Listen, there's single people. There's married people in this group. There's men in this group. There's a breadth of ethnic diversity in this group. You see Jewish names. You see Latin, Greek, Persian names in this list. You see class diversity, the city treasurer, the CFO, the wealthy who host churches in their home, down to even when it says that people in their households, these are indentured servants in the first century. See also the book of Philemon, with Philemon and Onesimus. There are indentured slaves in this list, Paul isn't discriminating. He's not looking at some people and go, they're worthy or they're not based on their class or ethnicity. He has friends in all places. What a beautiful picture of how Christian friendship should work. Here, listen to, here's your point. Your point is that friendship, Christian friendship is critical for our maturity and growth in the faith. It is critical for ministry. Our church ministry, it is critical for the mission of God to go forward. The people in the trenches are friends. Paul had friends, even as the driver. 2 Corinthians 7 helps us out a little bit. 
when we think about Paul, because he's kind of the celebrity apostle, if you will, and we kind of view him. I know I have. I've looked at the New Testament and go, man, he was just, God just had this anointing on him in such a way where he could just do no wrong and he did all, man, he needed other believers. Look at 2 Corinthians. I think we have this text here. Here's what Paul's saying. He's going through distress and he says this in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5 in 2 Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, our body had no rest. They were physically tired, but we were afflicted at every turn. That means they had persecution. Fighting without a fear within, but God, who comforts the downcast. He's saying, as Paul, Paul's saying, I'm downcast. He comforted us by what? He could have said, I comforted us through the word of God, comforted us through the Spirit's power, which are all true, but he said this comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus is his friend. Titus is laboring for the gospel. So it's a person that brings him comfort. And look at what, when Titus comes, it's not only his presence, but also what he said. He comforts us, which he was comforted by you. That's the Corinthian church. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me that I may Rejoice even more. Did Paul need to be encouraged? Did he need other believers in his life to be encouraged in the faith, to help him mature, to help him grow, to help his ministry? Yes. He needed the pit crew. Not only is that true, listen, my old pastor used to say it this way, sin makes us stupid. Pretty direct. Sin never sleeps in your life, in my life. And we need people around us to see our blind spots when we can't see them. We need to listen to trusted friends and brothers and sisters around us. Look at what Hebrews 3 says about the importance of one another. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But do, what do you do about it? Look at verse 13, but exhort one another every day. For some of us are like, I don't want somebody up in my junk every day. Exhort one another every day. You need brothers and sisters to see things in your life that you might not be able to see. That takes some trust, doesn't it? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none of you may, may, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That happens in our lives where we're hardened by something where we don't see it, where sin's deceptive and we need brothers and sisters to love us enough to come alongside of us to put their arm around us and say, hey, that's off. I love you. Let's walk in this. So listen, Christian friendships are critical for maturity, our growth, our ministry, and our mission. Can I ask you a question? Who's in your pit crew? Whose pit crew are you in? Who walks through hard in life with you? Who do you work, walk through hard with in their lives? Who encourages you? Who are you encouraging? You ever seen the movie Tombstone? I know, I've already used some Tombstone before. I've been here for a couple years. I got lots of quotes from Tombstone. I hadn't used this one, so I'm, it's fresh. <laughs> Most quotable movie 
I think Val Kilmer got completely hosed on not getting the Supporting Actor Award. He didn't even get nominated by the Oscars, but that's a whole different subject about the Oscars lately. Sorry, I went way over here. Tombstone. Remember the scene where after Wyatt Earp goes and their crew, their posse, take out Johnny, some of Johnny Ringo's family and their gang? And then you see them down by the water, walking on water. And you see Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer. And they're sitting there, and, and Doc Holliday in the movie, if you ain't seen it, it's old, so sorry, spoilers alert, are well done. He's coughing, he, he's really dying. And he's coughing up blood, it's in the middle of summer, he's sweating, he stands up and he coughs out this blood. And Jack Johnson, one of the other cowboys around him, he says, Doc, why the heck are you here? You need to be in bed. And Doc just turns to him and says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. To which Jack Johnson says, Man, I've got a lot of friends. And Doc simply replies, I don't. Real friends have each other's back, even when they have their own burdens to attend to. Who are your genuine Christian friends? Do you have any? Listen, a Christian friend who's in the trenches with you is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace to you. But listen, When you think about friendship, you've also got to think about, are you pursuing friendship? Are you actively pursuing other Christian friends? Because it doesn't just happen. Christian community doesn't just happen. It's built. And listen, especially in the world we live in today where we all get canceled by somebody. What are the hoops that you have for people to jump through? What are the conditions in which friendships have to be negotiated in your life? It takes work. It takes hard work to pursue friendship. But we need it. This is what Paul is showing us about his own life. It's critical for maturity. It's critical for the mission. It's critical for ministry as we labor together. And let me tell you, in a world... In a world marked by faux connection, that's what I'm going to call it, faux friendship, and we are more connected, and yet we are more lonely statistically, all of us, than we've ever been, especially people in leadership. Who are you connected to? Not just who do you talk to on social media, who do you text, like who do you have relationship with? You need it. There's no I in church. Well, friendship is critical for Paul. Same is true of us. He had a pit crew. He had a Doc Holiday in his life. He had lots of them. But listen, the community, the biblical community can also do something else. It can safeguard some things in a church. Look at this, verse 17 through 20. Let me get back. Verse 17 through 20, let me read it. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out 
Literally, the word is telescope. Look with a microscope or a telescope actively for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And then he encourages them, for your obedience is known to all, so that I may rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. As to what is good and innocent to what is evil, here's the beautiful end that we can hold on to. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day he will finally crush Satan. That Satan won't be loosed anymore, but he will be chained and thrown in the lake of fire, and that is our ultimate hope. So even when things are divided, we can still have a hope that God is going to win in the end. See, listen, we, the second thought today is this. We've got a safeguard. Jesus' church from pretenders and dividers. What's the motivation of the pretender? The false teacher, likely what's in view in first century, is the Judaizers. Remember, we've talked about them a little bit. These are people who have come in and said, no, it's the gospel, but it's the gospel, the good news plus the law. It's the good news plus the law and circumcision. Like you have to do all these things, but the gospel plus anything is nothing. And so likely in view are false teachers. But look, he shows us their motivation. He shows us what's going on underneath. He says that they are motivated by their own appetites or their own selfish ambition. And how are we going to see them? Well, they're probably people who are smooth talking. They're probably people who are flattering with their words. But look at the result. The result there is that what do they do? They deceive That's what Satan loves to do. He is the deceiver, and that's what it says about Satan. He's the deceiver, and he'd love to break up the church. He'd love to cause division, and sometimes it's false teaching, and sometimes it's just division from within. Listen, we can't be passive about false teaching. We can't be passive about division. We can't be naive to it. It doesn't mean we beat people over the head with things. But it certainly means that we have discernment and wisdom. Old story, extremely old story, Pope Leo X. He was a pope during the time of Martin Luther. And it's interesting because when Luther was doing his thing and pinning and posting and making a fuss in the Catholic Church, if you will, about Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Pope Leo didn't like this much. And he likened, rightfully so, it's interesting, there's some irony here, he likened the church, Jesus' church, to a vineyard. A vineyard, and he said, there's boars in the vineyard who are rooting up the vineyard, and Martin Luther is the chief boar. Oh, the irony. Pope Leo, all this time, was teaching false things and, worship, and also the selling of indulgences began to grow and grow and grow because it had to pay off his own luxuries and his own buildings that he wanted to build. Who was the boar in God's vineyard? See, here's the thing. 
sometimes false teaching, when it walks through the door, it's obvious. It's like the boar when you look at a field that's rooted up, you can see it from a mile away. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's that obvious, but oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's deceptive, and oftentimes it is sneaky. And sometimes it's in the underpinnings of culture and ideology. I grew up on a ranch, and my dad built my mom a two-story log house. A log house, and it was kind of his pride and joy that he spent a few summers building this thing, and I'm a little kid like these big old nails and nailing this, these logs in. And we got into the house. We lived out in the country. And um, we got into this house after a few years, my dad's pride and joy. And, you know, at night, if you, in the middle of the night, if you woke up, you would hear this noise, and we could, couldn't figure out what was going on. And it, but it sounded like eating. You looked on the logs, and you couldn't see anything on the inside of the house when you looked at the logs, or you go to the outside of the house. And so for months, my dad was trying to figure out what was going on. And what he discovered one day was that these little wood beetles, wood beetles were boring their way. They would come into the log down in the middle and where you couldn't see it, and they were boring into the logs, and they were destroying the internal integrity of a lot of our logs. We had to get the house fumigated. We have to do it every five years. Apparently, wood beetles, a certain type of wood beetles, are just native to, the, to our area. We had no idea. But it wasn't obvious. It wasn't the boar. It was the beetle. And sometimes that's the way false teaching and division happens within a church. I've seen it. I've seen inside a church believing people motivated by selfish ambition manipulate, change, and it's an ugly picture. And it creates chaos and disorder as James chapter 3, if you want to cross-reference, would describe. And it's an ugly thing. And I look at a culture around us and the ideologies that we are living in, and not all of them are like boars out in front of us. Many of them are like beetles, where it's hard to discern if there's error because there are some things that are right and good. Can I tell you, in the world that we live in, if you just take some values that our culture and our world has, they're just twisted. They're just twisted just a little bit when you think about identity and how important a biblical identity is and personhood is and how today it's twisted in areas like sexual orientation. How the biblical value of love that God loves us and therefore we love others has been twisted in the secular creed of our day to mean something very different than the beautiful value an ethic of love, just twisted. Justice. Does God care about justice? Yes, He does. And yet we twist it in such a way that it doesn't really bring justice, it just brings more harm. So we have to be careful for the beetles that are lurking, even in the ideologies of our day, the idea of freedom and what it is versus autonomy. The value of life, there are subtle beetles eating away. That's why we need biblical wisdom. That's what Paul says here. We need wisdom. And you know how that happens best? 
It happens in biblical community. Or we can all look at something and say, I think that's a little off. And somebody else can say, here's how. We need one another in the church to discern this. I would recommend to you a number of books. Maybe you're there and you're going, man, I see it in our world. I just don't know what to make of it. I just can't quite put my finger on it. Let me give you two book recommendations as it relates to how we engage and and how we make sense of our world. A guy named Carl Truman, he's written a couple of books. His latest one is called Strange New World. He is, in my mind, a trusted Christian historian and philosopher, and he does a great job getting down to our level, effectively. He's way up here. Our level to help us understand, here's why you're hearing what you're hearing. Here's the backdrop of the sexual revolution and identity problems that we're living in. I encourage you to read him. The Secular Creed, a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin, great book, to look at the secular creed of our day and say, here's where it's off. Here's the biblical value and here's how it's twisted. I encourage you to check those out. But praise God, right? Praise God at the end of the day, Satan is crushed. Listen, if that part of this text and that truth isn't here, as a guy who's been in ministry for 20 years and seen a lot, and done a lot himself, man, I would be out. The beauty is is that God comes through. The beauty is at the end of the day, the church prevails. Even if you've gone through, like many of you have, hurts in church, the church will prevail, not because we're so great, we're broken. Because God is so good, and he continues to work, even in broken places. Listen, the, the elder in the church that you were at, or have been at, didn't wake up in the morning one day and said, hey, I want to divide the church. It didn't happen that way, likely, okay? There is forgiveness. There is restoration, and God makes new things. He's done it with you. He can do it with churches. And so I am grateful as I look at this text that the God of peace will soon, we're waiting for it, fully crush Satan under his feet. Praise God for that. Last, as we look at this, we see again a doxology at the end of Romans. We see this beautiful way in which Paul just breaks out. He breaks out in praise for God. When he considers truths, and you see it all the way through the book of Romans, and all the way through the New Testament, he's going along, and he's explaining a truth, he's talking about the gospel, and he just breaks out in praise. And this is, what, what a fitting way for for. Uh, For him to end the book, it's the same way, by the way, he began this book. He began this work, this book in doxology and a praise for God. So look at it there in verse 25 through 27. It's meant to be um, sung. It's meant to be celebrated. Look Look at what Paul does here. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, my gospel. This is not some unique, weird thing. This is the gospel of Christ. And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings been made known. To who? All the nations. According to the command of the eternal God. To bring about the obedience of faith. Here it is. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ, the rescuer 
from our sin. The ruler who's Lord over all. He is predicted. He is revealed. And he is now proclaimed. Christ who died for your sins, a place that you deserve, the sins that you deserve to die for, he took upon himself and rose from the dead. The gospel is Christ, the rescuer and ruler of the world. And what does the gospel do according to this text? What does it do? It it compels us to go. We've got to take this mystery of the gospel that wasn't revealed, it's now revealed, not just to God's people, the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. That's a mystery. It's revealed to all people. So we've got to go and we've got to share this news with the peoples of the world. What else does it say? It says that the gospel has power to change us, power to change people, to bring about the obedience of the faith. What does the Great Commission talk about? Making disciples, baptizing, teaching them to do what? Obey. See, there's power to change in the truth of the gospel empowered by the Spirit of God. And then you see at the end of this, you see this description of who God is. That God is eternal. It's kind of set against who we are. We're limited. We're not eternal. We're we're finite. And yet God is eternal. Not only is He eternal, He is all wise, meaning He makes the best decisions in your life even when you can't see it, even if you never see it, that His decisions are all wise, that He is the best counselor. And there are things in your life, I assure you, I know, there are things in my life that I look at and go, how is that wise? How is that the best solution here? And yet God is working all things to the counsel of His will. He is Over all things. He is working all things. Good, bad, and indifferent. Nothing is out of his purview. Every molecule is where it ought to be in the universe. He is sovereign over all. He is sovereign in your life. Even through the hurt and the pain. Even through people that you need to forgive. Or you need forgiveness from. Or seeking forgiveness from. He's over all that. He's in control of all that. He loves you. He cares for you. So here's the third thought today. We need to magnify. We need to magnify our great God for the gift of his son. This is what Paul is doing at the end of Romans. And how do you magnify God for the gospel of grace? You express it. You worship in song. Listen, if you were up last night, And you're a North Carolina fan. And maybe you say, well, I'm not very expressive. And you're a North Carolina fan. What were you doing last night? You're probably jumping up and down. Because they made the championship game. They beat Duke, the rival, the last game Coach K is going to ever have. We beat them. Maybe you're a Duke fan and you're weeping. It's Coach K's last game. And we can't come to church. Like, we are expressive and maybe that, that doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't need to be perfunctory. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say you have to experience God a certain way, but we have senses, all of them, that we worship God with. So I would encourage you on a Sunday morning, for example, when you come to do business with God, but worship Him, sing to Him. And that's going to look different from somebody who's expressive and somebody who might not be We all have emotions, and those emotions can be driven toward worship of God as well. 
But it's not just worship on Sunday morning. It's not just singing. It's Romans 12 kind of stuff, isn't it? It's our spiritual act of worship, the way that we serve. And we said in Romans 12, the problem with a living sacrifice, this worship to God is a living sacrifice wants to crawl off the altar. I get it. But our lives ought to be worship to God. And last, we can share. It is worship for us to take the gospel to our neighbor who doesn't know, to the person down the street, to the ends of the world. And maybe you're here this morning and that's new to you, this idea of the good news of Jesus, that he died in your place. The other truth in the, in the gospel is this, you can't earn your way to heaven, you can't earn your way to have forgiveness with God. The book of Romans walks us through that. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All sin. Sin separates us from God. And it says the wages, basically what we earn because of our sin, is death. Be encouraged. Right? We've we've earned death because of our sin. And so we're separated from a holy God. And yet God demonstrates his love for us. It's beautiful. He demonstrates his love for us. That while... Not after. While we're yet sinners, Christ, what did he do? He died for us. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. That Jesus can rescue us. And maybe you need to hear that message this morning. Maybe you've never done that business with God to receive and trust in the good news of Christ. We pray that you would consider that in this great book that tells us that we're made right with God, not on our own, not what we bring to the table, but based on what Christ has done for us. It's a beautiful message. I hope you consider that this morning. And maybe others of us need to think about what we're magnifying. That know Jesus, what is it that we're magnifying in our lives today? When I started Romans, I started Romans, I started with the first day, I started with an example. An example was sitting around a campfire a few months before with a bunch of pastors. And the hypothetical question got asked, hey, if you had three books of the Bible and three books only that you could teach to people who had no knowledge of God on the deserted island, right? What three books would you take, pastor? And I think I said the book of Genesis because Genesis is foundational. It answers the big questions of life. I think I said the book of John because it tells us clearly who Jesus is and what he's done and the clarity of the gospel. And then I said Romans because it tells us and explains to us more about Jesus and how we're made right with God. If I had one book, and I'm not just saying this because I'm in Romans, but I'm telling you if I had one book on a deserted island and I needed to explain the whole counsel of God I need to explain the revelation of God and his person of his son and clarity about the central message of the gospel. I would pick Romans every time. Romans 1 through 3 tells us a problem. A problem whether we're moral or religious. From Montgomery County, this religious Christianese person. Or we're a heathen. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it gives us the solution to the problem in Christ. 
that Christ died to atone for our sins from God because God is holy and He demands sacrifice for sin. And Christ, His own Son, took our sin upon Himself to the glory of God as well to forgive us of our sins. Romans 4 walks us through faith. What is faith? That God credits faith to us on the basis of His Son. And He gives us gifts of faith and repentance that we come to Him by faith and trusting in Christ. And we're reminded in Romans 5 that sin is not just what we do, it's also inherent to us because of our parents, Adam and Eve. That it comes to us that the little child already has a sin nature that needs to be dealt with. I know you can't see that in your own children. Maybe other kids. And then, it's, and then it explains to us, hey, when you come to Christ, chapter 6 through 8, you have new life. Like, Totally new life that you're not anymore bound to sin, but you're alive. You've been freed from the power of sin in your life. And you have a new master. And it's Christ. The presence of sin is still there that we struggle with, but the power is broken. Praise God. And it's the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 that encourages us, that convicts us, that counsels us, that gives us power to live out this Christian life. And then he stops in 9 through 11 to remind us that God is always faithful to what he has promised. That he's, and, and the reason that Paul gives that he is faithful, and by the way, this, these things haven't happened yet, but they will. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. There's nothing out of his control good, bad, and different, that he's providential over all things, and he's working all things to the counsel of his will, and Paul responds with worship. He didn't understand that all. He couldn't rationally explain that all, but he worshiped God for all that God was, that he could rest in the promises of God. And then you get to chapter 12, and in chapter 12 through about 14, what we find out is the gospel is not just some classroom um, teaching that we stay in the classroom, but it actually has input and insight into the way that we live. That our relationships with other people, the the good news of the gospel impacts that as well. It gives us new life, but it, it helps us with relationships that are hard. Our relationships with other people in our church, which are sometimes hard, sometimes easy. Relationships with our enemies, how do we relate to them? Relationship with the rest of the world. Relationship to the state, we need some help there. Relationship to people we disagree on with non-essential things. I need help there. And then you get to the last couple chapters. 15 and 16. So we've seen that Jesus saves. We see that Jesus supplies us and sanctifies us and sets us apart. And now we see in the last two chapters, he sends us. The church is on a mission to share all this beautiful news to the world. Like we're in a desert, in a broken place, and we found the oasis. It's not a mirage, it's real. What do we do? We tell people about the good news of Jesus. Your takeaway, really more than today, your takeaway in the book of Romans is this. Jesus saves. Jesus supplies or sanctifies. Jesus sends us out. And all of this is for our good. 
is for our good and God's glory. Let me pray.